This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Yumiko Kadota, welcome to Better Reading. Hello, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. I'm really super excited today to chat with you for all sorts of reasons. One, I enjoyed the book, if you can use that word enjoyed, but also I'm having my own experience at the moment with my mum and the public hospital system. And your book has prompted me to look at things differently. And that's been really interesting. Mm, I'm sorry to hear about your mum. Thank you. Yeah. All right, now, let me introduce you. Yumiko was working as a plastic surgeon at a Sydney public hospital in 2018 when months of mistreatment and overworking led her to break down and quit what was once her dream job. Her blog post about the toxic culture faced by junior doctors in the workplace entered mainstream media. Yumiko has now published a memoir based on this experience called Emotional Female. She writes about her experience of overworking, sexism, racism and the hospital system and how to recover from extreme burnout. I mean, it is really extreme and it's just such a passionate account. You know, firstly, when I picked the book up, Yumiko, I thought it was just going to be a book of whinging. (laughs) absolutely not that yeah um kind of you you know put things in perspective in a really really passionate intelligent way anyway talk to me about it where did it all start it all started with a blog post in 2018 I started a blog when I was going into hospital as a patient myself. So after I quit my job, I got diagnosed with depression and I continued to get worse and worse. And in October of 2018, I went into hospital knowing that I would be in there for several weeks. And we were allowed to bring in personal items like a laptop with us. And I thought, well, I want something to do while I'm I'm there. And I've always enjoyed writing. I've always journaled. So I thought it would be quite a therapeutic thing for me to be able to to write while I'm there. And at the time, I wasn't ready to talk about my experiences yet. So I decided to talk about other topics like yoga and healthy eating and things that I was trying to incorporate into my life to try and get healthier. But um, a few months after starting the blog, I felt finally ready to talk about it. And that's when I started trying to remember all the things that had happened. And it was a way for me to try and process my job and what I had done because I never thought that I would quit. It was just something that I always thought I would end up doing. And so it took me a really long time to understand what got me to that stage and the writing process really helped me to get there. Mm -hmm. So take me right back. Where did you grow up and how is it that you came to be a plastic surgeon? 
Um, I was born in Tokyo, which is where my mom's from. My dad's a country boy from a small place called Imabari, which is in an island called Shikoku Island in the southwest of Japan. I was only there for three months. So I, I guess I'm not really that Japanese because <laughs> I left as a baby, but I have gone back a lot for summer holidays. And my parents are certainly very traditional. And um, I've grown up with both of my parents speaking Japanese at home. I briefly lived in the Philippines for a couple of years for my dad's job. And then we moved to Singapore and that's where I grew up. Uh, I've got two younger sisters, Eriko and Mariko, who are in the book as well. They're younger than me. And the three of us had a really great childhood in Singapore. It's a, it's a very multicultural place. And we went to an international school there. And I, I have very fond memories of Singapore. And then we moved to England for a couple of years, for year 9 and 10. And then for year 11, I came to Sydney and I've been here ever since, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And um, to answer the second part of your question about how I ended up in, in plastic surgery, I, I had quite a few interests in school. I was always interested in everything, but I knew that I really enjoyed the sciences and I've always been a people person. So I think medicine felt like a job that would be good for me because it was a good combination of people skills and science as well. So I I decided in year 12 that I wanted to go into medicine and plastic surgery in particular was what really grabbed my interest because it's a very creative specialty. When, when we think about plastic and reconstructive surgeons, they have to do a lot of problem solving because a lot of patients who come in with traumas or have um, disfiguring illnesses or or cancers that eat away at the body, the plastic surgeons are the ones who have to think about how we can reconstruct that part of the body using another part of the body. So I always found that really fascinating. So from very early on, that's what I want. It it has a bad reputation, I think, because people Mm. um, often think that it's cosmetic surgery. Uh, Why Mm. is it called plastic surgery? It actually comes from the Greek word plastikos. So it it basically means um, something that's flexible, something that you can mold. And so skin is a bit like that. Yeah, it's a very flexible organ and it's about remolding the body. Oh, yeah, got that. So it's a long process, isn't it? So it's not just medicine. To be a surgeon is more than doing a medical degree, isn't it? Talk to me about that process, where you went. And as a female, how you were feeling in those early days of study? Well, to be honest, when I was in in the early stages, it it never bothered me at all. I grew up with my dad telling me I can do whatever I wanted to do. He was always supportive. So I never felt any impact of gender early on. I knew that I would do whatever I wanted to do. And if I worked hard enough towards it, that I would eventually reach my goals. So I was very, very enthusiastic. And the start of the journey starts with um, medical school, which I did for six years. I was an undergrad, so I went straight from high school. Other people choose to do it as a postgraduate degree. And that's becoming a more popular model for study. And um, I guess that's another conversation, but I, I think I'm very much supportive of the postgraduate model because I was so young when I started. I was only 17 and what do you know about life at that stage and you really don't have the life experience or the maturity to deal with some of the more 
difficult aspects of medicine, I guess. But um, I studied that for six years. And then whenever we finish, everyone has to do an internship for a year to get general registration as a doctor on the medical board. So I did that. Because I had only recently moved to Australia, I was an international student. So I wasn't offered a place in New South Wales, but I was lucky enough to get a position at a hospital in Melbourne. So I went down to Melbourne for a few years to to work there as an intern. And then after internship is a residency. And that's pretty much the same as an intern. You're still a junior doctor, but with a little bit more responsibility and, and a bit of experience behind you. And then after that, you then choose what specialty you're interested in and you start to to streamline your your clinical experience. And that's when I applied to be a plastic surgery registrar and that's what I was working in. And after that, you have to formally apply for an advanced training program to get the qualification. And that's often another five or six year program until you're fully qualified to be a plastic surgeon. So, So that's the stage I was when I ended up quitting, I was applying to get onto this advanced training program. And that was my entire obsession (laughs) in my mid to late 20s. So talk to me about the angst. Talk to me about where it all started, because it seemed to me that it was a downward spiral, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it definitely was. I think that it was probably in the second or third year of work that I started to realize that things weren't as rosy as I thought they were going to be. There were so many things at play that were outside of my control. I observed a lot of bullying and even even assault in the workplace. I was really shocked when a colleague of mine told me that she was reprimanded by a neurosurgeon who stomped on her foot and broke it. And I was just shocked that she was walking around with a broken foot and didn't feel that she could tell anyone about it. That's the kind of power that seniors have in the workplace. And I think that for people who aren't familiar with medical training, there's actually only one training provider in all of Australia and New Zealand for any given specialty. So when you think of other careers, there are different places that you can train through to, to get to your final, um, I guess, career goal. But in medicine, there's only one college for any specialty. So if you want to be a surgeon, there's only one college of surgeon for Australia and New Zealand. And so if you um, don't have the perfect record, then you've ruined your chances because there's no other training provider that you can go with. And so every term has a lot of pressure because every senior surgeon that you work with is potentially going to be someone on the selection panel or someone you need as a referee to progress. So there is a lot of pressure on young doctors and also it makes them very vulnerable to exploitation and I think that's why a lot of senior doctors tend to get away with mistreating juniors because they have all this power. So a lot of what I was observing was uh, a power imbalance at work. Mm. Do you know, it it really, and I'm sure it's naive, but I've seen many, many years ago when I was studying, I worked in a kitchen, in a restaurant kitchen, Mm -hmm. and there was a person that was called the dishwasher, wasn't an actual machine, and one of the chefs threw a knife at that person. Mm. Now, it missed, right? But if it would gotten that person, now I was aghast. I was very young, but I was so shocked. And I walked up to the dishwasher and I said, you should call the police. 
Mm. I mean, because if you're walking out, if you're out in the street and somebody throws a knife at you, that is assault and you call the police, right? And he's like, no, but I'll lose my job. And I thought this is the protection, isn't it? And it's the Mm. same in hospitals. Exactly the same. Surgeons throw scalpels all the time. I'd already known about surgeons throwing instruments and throwing tantrums in the operating theatre, but I think that actual injury also happens as well and it's a very scary thing. Well, I mean, it is insult. Like, you know, your friend with stomping on the foot and breaking Mm -hmm. it, if you're out in the street and somebody stomps on your foot and breaks it, you call the police. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I can understand why it happens and it's not reported, but that's the problem, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yes. A lot of people don't feel confident reporting things like sexual assault, physical assault, bullying, all of these things because there's so much at stake. And uh, for a lot of people, it's everything that you've worked towards. And for some people like me, I knew I didn't want to let my parents down. Uh, You know, my dad didn't have the best upbringing. He was a country boy with not many opportunities and he worked so hard to give my sisters and I an education. And and he was the one I was really afraid of telling when I quit because he gave me so much financial and moral support throughout my, my studies. And so I think a lot of people feel this pressure to keep going. And there is a lot of parental pressure as well, I think, for young doctors. Well, and social pressure, I think, you know, you go to a party, people say, what do you do? You know, all that sort of stuff. And it seems to me like if you get into a, a program that, you know, you're going to be a plastic surgeon, people are shocked that you gave that up. Describe to me maybe a best day and a worst day that you had in your job. Mm. You know, the best days always come down to feeling like I had a purpose. So anytime I had a positive interaction with a a patient or a family member, that always reminded me of exactly why I went into this profession. And I think that most doctors do go into it for altruistic reasons. You want to do something to make a difference to somebody's life. And And I do know that once I had more skills and responsibility, it felt good that my own two little hands could make such a difference to someone else's quality of life. And I was particularly interested in hand surgery because a lot of the procedures are actually quite, quite short. For example, if someone has carpal tunnel syndrome, it's just a 10 minute procedure. And yet when they come back for follow-up, they're so happy because they have function back in their dominant hand and we're such manual creatures. So to be able to give someone back their function was very rewarding for me. So there were lots of highs from, from being able to perform hand surgery. For me, I think the lows were the days when there was bullying in the workplace, when, when my seniors would, you know, dismiss my concerns or, or make me feel bad for being a woman or or not just not being there um, when I needed more senior support. And particularly towards the end, there was a lot of sarcasm. Whenever I needed a break, it was a sarcastic comment here and there because I had said something about the roster and it just got worse and worse. I just felt like I couldn't win either way. <laughs> 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So what would your day look like? How many you would arrive at work at what time and... I would arrive at work around 6.30 or 7 in the morning to get ready for my day. And we often start early because operating theatres start at 8 o'clock sharp. So we need to see all of the inpatients before that for a ward round. So I will do an early ward round with my team. And then if there's time for a coffee, I tried very, very much to make sure I did that for the team because often that's the only time of day where you can sit down with your junior members and make them feel valued. And that's something that was really important for me because I know that when I was a junior doctor I really appreciated it when my seniors put in the effort to make me feel like I was part of the team and so I really prioritized that every morning to sit down go through the day's plan with my junior team members so that they felt comfortable with what they had to do for the day and then I would rush off to the operating theater and and perform operations and in my last job, I was pretty much on call all the time, which meant that my pager would go off every now and then from the emergency department or from the ward with requests to see patients with hand injuries or facial injuries or anything re- related to plastic and reconstructive surgery. So my day would be a mixture of seeing referrals and operating on, on patients and I was often doing 24 hours on call, which means that even after I'm done for the day and even if I do make it home, I often was getting phone calls throughout the night and sometimes even had to return to the hospital if if a patient needed um, urgent attention. So even though there were lots of rewarding moments, it I think the fatigue and the distress um, overwhelmed me towards the end. I think when you're on call, continuously there is just no no way that you can ever relax it's this state of mental unrest and I'm not surprised at all that I ended up being diagnosed with depression because I was under so much stress and extremely sleep deprived I was getting more and more ill as that term went on. Mm. Do you know I'm one of those people that if I don't get eight hours sleep a night you know most nights it's eight and a half Mm -hmm. then I'm teary the next day I'm emotional oh, um, me too. <laughs> yeah but it's when you we're talking you're not even getting I mean how many hours of sleep were you getting uh, sometimes I was only getting two or three. <laughs> oh my God. I mean I just don't know how you can even function with those you know 
Yeah, it's definitely something I raised with the hospital because I was concerned about my brain function. And since then, I've I've been very, very interested in researching sleep because I saw the effect it had on me. And Mm -hmm. often we talk about sleep disruption being worse than a short duration of sleep. And that's certainly what you go through when you're on call because you might get to sleep at a reasonable hour, but then when you get woken up, particularly when you're in that kind of deep phase of sleep, it's very disruptive to brain function. And I think anyone who's had a bad night's sleep knows that the next day you're groggy, you're cranky, you aren't able to concentrate as well as you otherwise would. And I was worried because I was doing a job where I sometimes literally would have someone's life in my hands and I didn't want to make any mistakes. And it's Similar to operating heavy machinery, you want someone doing it to be alert and well-rested. Well, pilots, you know, for Mm. instance, you know, yeah, they're giving rest time. I've often thought, and I'm very, very lucky because I know so many people around me that don't sleep, but Mm. I've always related the amount of hours you you sleep to happiness. Oh, yeah. Mm. And I've seen that in a lot of people that I've worked with, that, you know, family people. If you are a person that sleeps well, you are more likely to be a happier person. I think you're onto something there. I'm very envious of my younger sister, Maniko. I don't know how, but she's one of those people who rests her head on a pillow and she's already asleep. (laughs) She gets eight to 10 hours every day and she's one of the happiest, most chilled out people I know. So I can't even count to three when I get into bed. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Back to you. I want to, so then you're, you're in the grind and really a lot of people don't make the big decision that you made, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me what it was like building up to that decision. I kept putting it off, even though the people around me were telling me I needed to quit. I was, I kept thinking, no, how can you say that to me? I have nothing else. This is all I want to do. And I was almost offended when people would tell me to, to give it up (laughs) because I thought that it was almost like a criticism. I I thought they were saying to me, well, I don't think you're going to make it. So why bother kind of thing? So I being very stubborn and ambitious, I just kept pushing through And I I was used to long hours. I was used to ignoring all the symptoms of stress. But it was when my physical body broke down that I knew that I had to do something. I was driving to work one day and I lost control of my bowels. And that was such a horrifying moment. You think, wow, I was 30 at the time. And I think a 30-year-old, young, fit and healthy, shouldn't be losing continence. <laughs> and that was such an all-time low for me. It was such an undignified experience sitting in my car in a pile of my own poo. Um, but that was really the red flag for me. That was when I said, you know what, this work is killing me. It's affecting my physical health now, not just my mental health. And I went to see my GP. My GP who'd known me for a few years by then was extremely worried about me. And she even felt that she needed to write to the hospital. So she wrote me a letter. The hospital didn't seem to care too much about that. And even other surgeons at the hospital started to worry about me and the head of surgery even got involved. So all these powerful people at the hospital were speaking up for me. And yet my department 
didn't do anything. They kept telling me that, oh, yeah, we'll change it. Don't worry, we'll look after you. And so I, I kept going thinking, okay, things are going to get better. But the night before I quit, I got an updated roster which showed that I'd actually be working more hours in the second half of term because I'd be covering annual leave for a couple of my colleagues. And that's when I thought, you know what, that's it. It's not going to get any better. And I think in my decision process as well, one of the questions I asked myself was, let's say I do continue and eventually I do get accepted onto the training program. Do I still want it? And I thought about all the systemic issues I'd seen over the years, all the bullying, all the sexism. And I thought to myself, you know what? It's still going to be toxic. Even if I go to another hospital, even if I work with another unit, I'm still going to go through the same thing. And I I don't want to be treated like that anymore. And so I quit. Hmm. Did you speak to your father before you quit or after you oh, quit? Oh, no, I couldn't possibly. I I didn't tell either of my parents for about six months. And mm-hmm. it was kind of easy to have, uh, have that secret because they'd moved back to Japan. My father became unwell. He he was diagnosed with lymphoma. And I'm he, sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, he's actually very well now. Um, oh, good. Yeah, he, he's very lucky he responded to a new chemotherapy agent, which I didn't even know about because I didn't learn about it in medical school. So it's 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 quite amazing, the cancer research. Um, but anyway, he decided he wanted to semi-retire, move back to Japan and receive treatment over there. So they had left. And I I just knew that my parents were had too much on. You know, they're worried about my dad's cancer and you know, they have their own life in Japan. So I thought, you know, I'm going to keep this to myself. They don't need to know about this. Maybe I'll return back to work somehow. So I put put it off. It was only when I got admitted to hospital when I felt like I could tell them. I thought, well, maybe if they see me and realize that this is how hard I push myself, they might forgive me. And so looking back now, I think it's so silly because they're my parents. They've always been supportive and there's no reason why they wouldn't have been. But I had this inner monologue telling me that it was a bad idea to tell them that they would be so angry and disappointed with me. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't tell them until October of that year and I had quit in, in June. So a good four or five months afterwards. Mm. So what led you to writing the memoir? Well, It's a very lucky opportunity, I have to say. When I wrote the blog post, it ended up on the news, which was unexpected because it was a tiny blog. I only had 11 subscribers at the time, friends and family. And so I never expected it to reach the news. But because of that, I was very lucky in that I got approached by a couple of publishers. And until then, I didn't even think I would attempt writing a book. I mean, it's, I've never written anything of this length before. And so it's never something I thought I would be able to do. So I'm, I'm lucky that that opportunity came up and I had a lot of support, a lot of editorial support from Penguin to write it. And so Mm -hmm. this started at the start of 2019. So I spent the last two years writing it. Mm. And tell me how that helps in terms of healing. Well, the best thing for me has been actually hearing from other female doctors who've read the book because when I first wrote the blog post, there were people behind my back saying, oh, she's just exaggerating or she's just bitter because she didn't succeed. And I think 
even if you're not a doctor, if you end up leaving a workplace due to workplace issues, I think a lot of people feel gaslighted. It's so easy for workplaces to blame the individual rather than examining the systemic factors that are driving people away. So I, I think it's very common. Oh, yeah, it really is. I've spoken to people from all industries saying that they were made to feel like they were the one who couldn't cope or that they were the crazy one because it's just easier for employers to do that rather than take responsibility. So the most healing part of this book has been people reaching out and saying, I've gone through the same thing too. And it's extremely validating to hear that, especially after what I'd heard from my workplace when I first quit. So I've really felt the power of sharing our stories. I'm a big fan of the of people sharing their lived experience because I think we can learn a lot from each other's stories and we can help validate each other. And so that's been the best thing uh, mm. about writing the book. And I think empower each other, you know, like, I mean, yeah. of course I'm not in the medical business, but, you know, when I was reading it, I, there were many times that I was bullied in the workplace. There was many times I left a job because I was bullied, but I didn't do anything more about it because I was powerless. So I think a lot of people... This book resonates with a lot of people, particularly women. I hope so. Yeah, I think that I think it does help to hear somebody mm-hmm. else say it because often we internalize it. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking about all these exit questionnaires and things when you quit a job. No one ever, very few people go back for an exit interview because once you've left, especially if it was a toxic experience, you don't want to go back and chat to anyone there. Well, do you know what else? Even if you do go back and even if you do do it, the employer, because usually it's the Mm. tone is set, you know, it comes from the top, Mm. the employer will use 100 excuses to say, well, yeah, but she wasn't great. Even if it is a really constructive Mm. interview, people will be defensive and they won't acknowledge it and they won't own it. Yeah, and then change is not affected. Yes, and I think often it's just a tick box thing for them as well. Did we offer the exit interview? Yes, yes. Did they say yes or no? They tick it, they filed the form, and then nothing ever happens. And I think a lot of it as well is that people think about the people who stay, not the people who leave. There's this real survivorship bias in in any industry where we, where the people who stay say, well it's fine. I'm still here. There's nothing wrong with how we do things. We don't need to change things because no one ever bothers to listen to the people who have left. No, that's right. So what now? Where to from here? Well, it's been quite overwhelming the last couple of months. I I love writing and I would love to write again, but I've wanted to put all of my focus and energy into this book and spreading the message out there to try and help as many both men and women um, who've gone through this sort of experience, whether it's bullying or overwork, burnout, mental health, there's so many themes to the book that I I want to explore with others. So I'd still like to continue having these conversations. But once this all dives down, I hope that I have another opportunity to write again. I've been waiting to get some feedback on the book before attempting it because you never know someone might tell me to go back to my day job so I thought I'll wait see how this book goes and if it does well then maybe I'll write again. (laughs) Do you think there will be change? Oh I really hope so Mm -hmm. Um, but change is slow especially cultural change because to change culture you need to change how people 
think and act. And that's something that's very difficult to do, especially if the people who perpetrate these sort of behaviors don't realize that what they're doing is wrong or they they refuse to change what they're doing. So it does take a long time. And there are definitely anti-bullying campaigns and things that the various medical organizations run. And I do believe that there is more awareness about these issues, but for, for actual behavioral change to happen, I think will still take a number of years. It so. will, because you know what happens? It's the younger people that accept the bullying and the assault and the mm. racism and the sexism and whatever. And then when they're senior enough, they do it to somebody else. You know, instead of thinking, oh my God, that was such a terrible experience. I'm going to make sure that I don't live my life like that. Mm. It just doesn't seem to be human behavior. Similar to intergenerational trauma in that. And violence. Absolutely. People think, well, I've gone through a hard time. Why should you have it easy kind of thing? And we really just need to break the cycle. And there are some good senior surgeons I've worked with over the years who don't accept that kind of thing anymore and think, you know what, things need to be better for the young generation. So I have had the benefit of working with a few really great mentors. And I currently am very lucky to return to the clinical workforce. I'm not back into the public hospital system. I don't think I could ever go back there again, but I am currently working with two plastic surgeons as their assistant surgeons. So they've really taken me under their wing and I, I follow them to all of their operating lists in the private hospitals. So I'm still able to utilize the skills that I gained over the years, but in a much safer and friendlier environment. So I do have faith that there are people around who do want things to be better and kinder for the future generation. And I do see a lot of young people more willing to speak up about these issues. And I feel really optimistic when I see the current medical students. I teach some of them now and I feel hopeful because they're so enthusiastic and the environment is a lot more inclusive at universities now. Even seeing things like queer groups at uni, it's amazing. They put in a lot of effort with celebrating diversity at university and that's something that I never saw when I was a student. And, you know, I've recently been talking to an obstetrician who is gay and he felt that he couldn't go to his ceremony to receive his um, fellowship certificate with his partner because he knew that there was so much homophobia in his cohort. And I've also had a very close friend who was in the closet the whole time we were at uni. And so to see something like a queer group at uni makes me feel good because I know that the younger generation now, they're a lot more inclusive. And the more we can make the environment inclusive and the more visibility we have for more marginalised groups, I think the better it's going to be. Because I think when I think about the issues that women in surgery have, it starts with just the poor visibility. In Australia, only 11% of surgeons are women. So, So I do feel that I'm seeing things slowly change and I do think things will get better for the future generations. Well, that's wonderful to hear. (laughs) Yumiko, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. 
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.